This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and, and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. It's always great to be with you. Thank you for joining me again. If you're new, thank you for tuning in to the place where you can find that unique American Muslim voice, that patriot uh, fighting for freedom, willing to take on the issues that confront us, confront our civilization, and breach that divide between the world of Islam, Islamism, Sharia, Islamic law, and the world of the West, the land of freedom and liberty. Every week, I join you in challenging those ideas, those concepts that we continue to wallow in, often ignorantly, often without direction, politicians driven by various forces that I hope to expose you to here. And as a former naval officer and as a reformist Muslim seeking to defeat the ideas of political Islam, I hope you'll keep coming back to figure out how to make progress, how to find hope in a land, in a world that seems more and more hopeless. Again, in this political season, it's always easy to fall back on politics, but this week I want us to step back a little. I know we've talked a lot about Syria in the past uh, few segments and episodes. Uh, But what I want to do this week is focus the entire program on, if you will, understanding the cauldron that brewed ISIS, understanding where we came from. ISIS didn't come out of nowhere. The uh, revolution of 2011 didn't just happen overnight. There was a smoldering, deep, underground and sometimes overground revolution happening in Syria since 1963. And what I want to do today is spend some time with you, educating you, and then you can come back, listen again to this podcast, use it as a reference point in which you can understand fully and shed the ignorance that is so driving our completely vacuous Syrian policy today, our completely impotent and spineless 
representation of what should be American righteousness abroad against the humanitarian disasters and military barbarism of the Assad regime and ISIS. But you cannot understand how we got from 2011 to 2016 without first understanding what happened in Syria in the 20th century. Today's revolution is a simple culmination of the pathologies of the cancer and now cancers that were planted and seeded in the early to mid to late 20th century. And I want to walk you through some of that. Now, we've talked here and there and smatterings on this program about some of it, but I think it's also worth your time because understanding Syria will allow you to understand Yemen, the triangulation there, to understand Iran, to understand Egypt. Every one of these Middle Eastern countries that seems to be a puzzle in and of itself is simply the same pathology, the same sickness, with the same Sunni-Shia divide, the same historical devastation of dictatorship that has savaged and ravaged an educational system, that has pushed the righteous, the honest, the moral underground, and that has imprisoned free thinkers. And I think if you understand Syria, you'll understand the rest of the Middle East, you'll understand the battle that we're fighting against radical Islam and what produces them. And I think the personal element for me, yes, does have a lot at stake, but I do think it brings home how my story, my family's story in Syria is not unique. There are many families like ours, many, many millions of stories like ours, and yet more hope than you'd think. But when righteous, when the good ones are abandoned, evil will fill that vacuum. Let me start by saying, you know, after World War II, in the late 40s, it looked like freedom had possibly finally come to Syria. No longer was it to be under French control. The French pulled out and Syria celebrated it, its independence. That it would finally be free of foreign influence and control. But what Syria did not count on and the Syrians did not anticipate was the massive corruption, fights for power and military coups that would become the norm in their country. My grandfather, uh, Zudi Jasser, was uh, one of those right after the war in World War II who believed ardently in his country's ability to become free. He had been a vegetable oil business owner, but also active in Syrian politics, and an avid writer in the political arena. With the departure of the French colonial control after World War II, you know, he thought that ultimately Syria would be able to form a parliament, as did many of the leaders then, and that after centuries, or even decades, let's let's give you that, uh, of subjugation by the French and the Turks and the Ottomans for centuries before, a brutal regime that came to a close after World War I, that it would only take a short time 
for the French to take over. But then when they pull out, they thought that they would have a democracy in Syria, that they'd have a parliament patterned after what the West had. But perhaps that was more elusive than one would think. After the French relinquished relinquished control and the country in the late 40s formed a functional parliament, my grandfather and his colleagues, and he was close to Hashem al-Tassi, who was, I believe, the second or third president in 1949, formed a functional parliament in a Western-style democracy. And it was ultimately the debate, the anarchy, the divisions, the multiple political parties that began to devastate the ability for unity. And, you know, many times my grandfather told me that one of the blessings in America, of the many, but one of them is our two-party system, that if you have 20 parties, you could shift control from far extremes left to right, and the center would lose its ability to influence society. So my grandfather, as he saw the disunity, began to write as under the pseudonym Al-Karim for a major Syrian newspaper. And again, his story was not unique. There were many that tried to talk about freedom and were receiving a lot of pushback because one of the reasons, uh, like many Middle Eastern countries, that Syria fell apart was that the military was inhabited by the most ruthless less moral, immoral, corrupt, and evil in society. Why? Because remember, the military was the French military, and then they pulled out. And the only people working in that military were the sellouts, those who did not believe in Syria, Syrian nationalism, those who were against the native population, and often those who simply wanted to be close to power and influence and oppression and military might. But the people did not have a constitution, let alone a Second Amendment. So as the 40s progressed into the 50s, certain parliamentary governments won an election, but then found themselves a year later having to submit to another election. And then one thing led to another, and the militaries found themselves under coup. And most of the coups that were happening, one after the other, with presidents like Sheshekli and others that were known dictators of the time. But this period of repeated dictatorship and coups, most of which were bloodless coups because the people had no weapons, but the military to them were foreign. Yes, these were Syrians, and yes, these were fascist national Arabists, but various different parties, but they were not the ones who wanted to be free. But the people had no power. There were 19, if not 20, different presidents until the late 50s. So within a 12-year period of time, coup after coup after coup happened, and then the Ba'ath came. With... The Ba'ath came, a consolidation of power, it ended the era of the coups, and 
Some of the quasi-Ba'ath had decided to try an experiment with Egypt for a few years, but that failed. They felt that they lost their identity to the Egyptians, and the Syrian-Egyptian Arab Republic died in 1962-63. My grandfather had been trying to write a number of columns and had written for the newspaper the largest newspaper in Syria under his pseudonym Al-Karim, but with the Ba'athists had been almost permanently been put under house arrest. They'd let him out and threaten him if he wrote his column again that they would again jail him, and he did and was again jailed time after time. And again, his story is not unique. Any Syrians that dreamt of a Western-style parliament democracy with, as my grandfather's party was called, Hezbollah Shab, which is the People's Party. The People's Party had initially been free. Now it later became more socialist and communist in its leanings because of infiltration and influence from the Soviets. It wasn't just being in and out of house arrest. It was the reality of the fact that there was a solidification of a cruel, inhuman, brutal military regime, a National Socialist Party, otherwise known as Baathism. Look it up, understand what Baathism is, because that was one of the turning points when you had a military coup that then separated itself back to Syria from Egypt, unable to work with Jamal Abdel Nasser, the dictator of Egypt, which it tried to create this United Arab Republic, and it failed. But then when it went back to Syria in 1962, they decided to solidify and cleanse its ranks of any moderates, if you will, and the National Socialist Fascist Party of Baathists solidified power. Now, it was major at that time, majorly run by the Sunnis, and more of a military-style rule. There were a few Alawites in their rank. And what are Alawites? Alawites are the later to become defined as a small Shia offshoot of the Twelvers of the Shia Islamic tradition now seen for the majority in Iran and Iraq, which are ultimately into the 80s became Khomeinists but they're more clerical, clergy-driven faith. The Alawites were a more protean type in the Arabic. They're called Nusayriyin. They pretended to sort of camouflage themselves with, with whichever population was dominant, as they did with the French and then with the Baathists. And we saw a major massacre in Hama in 1963 that tried to stop the Baath takeover. And they failed, and tens of thousands were massacred. And then there was another coup in 1967, and this coup was probably one of the most significant ones in that it was an internal revolt from within the Ba'ath Party against its leadership. So you saw a more Alawite revolt against the Sunni majorities, but within that military dictatorship. When we come back, we'll continue into the late 60s, and I want to take you then into the regime of Hafiz al-Assad. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser.
Reaching the fault lines of today. The Blaze Radio Network. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. Reaching the fault lines of today, this is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another segment of Reform This this week on the Blaze Radio Network, your faithful podcast host who brings the issues of the day to you in a way, in a narrative that you've never heard before from an American perspective, perspective of freedom and liberty, but primarily in a perspective of reform against political Islam, against theocracy, against the enemies of America and universal human rights. I last left off in the previous segment talking to you about the initial evolution into Ba'athism in Syria. And we were talking about how the Ba'ath took over in 63. The Alawite faction of the Ba'ath party had taken over in a bloody coup in February 1966. Had then allowed the Ba'ath party to transform itself from a Sunni Arab incarnation of military fascism to a more minority-directed and led Alawite Ba'athist incarnation of fascist Arabism. So here you had a minority religious group, the Alawites, that then took over a major military party, the only political party allowed in Syria. The fact that they were a minority religion really was not that relevant because they were ruling like the Sunni Saddam Hussein, who was also Ba'athist, ruled in a very secular, militant, authoritarian, tyrannical way. So again, whether the you're talking about the Soviets, uh, the communists of China, North Korea, any other fascist regimes, their internal religions of their leaders may not matter. Now, it does matter later on, as we see what happens in the evolution of Syria, that the Alawites were Shia because they later would become with Bashar al-Assad and with his father who began to move away from the Arab League, the Sunni Arab League, towards the axis and the hegemonization of the Shia crescent from Iran to Iraq and Syria and Lebanon. The members of the Sunni Muslim leadership were purged from the Syrian military after the coup of 66. And the entire leadership, especially the generals, became comprised of Alawite Ba'athist faithful. Sunni, Christian, Druze, Ismaili influences were all but eliminated. 
non-Alawite officers uh, who were part of the Syrian military were ousted and that there was an attempt early on in the 70s that there was a, a point at which the country was on the verge of a major sectarian civil war. But that did not happen, again, because the people did not have weapons and because the viciously ruthless Hafez Assad had made sure it would not happen. And one of the things Hafez did, now Hafez took over in 1970. He had been the Minister of Defense and had then taken over in another coup in which he broadsided the last Sunni leader of the Ba'ath Party. And the Assad family then quickly took over the major leadership roles of the military and the economy in Syria. And in line with the totalitarian despotism of the Ba'ath Party, he ruled with an iron fist. He ended the infighting because he cleansed through assassinations and ethnic cleansing anyone that violated his rules. He obliterated Sunni protestations both inside and outside the party. And he placed a few loyalists who might have been Sunni, might have been Christian, and Druze at mid-level with a few sort of puppet, higher-level political or business positions. But ultimately, these were all deep, deep sympathizers with the Assad family as well as with Ba'athism. So make no mistake, the irons fists, the nails in the coffin of Syria were placed in the 70s. That's when the first Soviet base was placed in Tartus, was in 1971. And my family can tell you, as can anyone who was familiar honestly with Syria, that the styles of population control that the military then began to use was no longer simply slash and burn, but it was viciously systematic and methodical state-sponsored terror upon neighborhoods no different than the Soviets did their purges and their pogroms and mass killings. Because Hoff has learned and his military learned from the Soviets, and they became part of the Soviet client state empire. And if you want to understand the Ba'athists of Iraq use some similar methods who also were not part of the West's influence. And one of the books I always recommend is A Republic of Fear. And that book talks about how, for example, Saddam used to walk into third grade classes and ask children, he'd say, tell me, what do your parents say about me? What do they say about Saddam? around the dinner table. Do they joke? Do they respect me? And the eighth, eight-year-old would say, oh, yeah, we say jokes. And next thing you know, the parents disappear. That's what tyranny is. When people say, where were the voices of revolutions? They were either smothered, fearful, or sympathizers. They were muzzled in every form. The Assad regime paralyzed the humanity of 22 million Syrians for two generations using unmentionably cruel methods. And, and do not overestimate 
the intelligence operations, the brothers reporting on sisters, on families, where one would say something at a dinner table and next thing you know, the brother, in order to maintain their life or to achieve material ends, would report on his own. We saw this with some stats that said one out of nine American Syrians for a long time were part of the global intelligence operation. And because of the huge drain of population out of Syria during many of these coups and revolutions that were attempted over time, today, in the last decade, it's been known that there are more expatriate Syrians than there are Syrians inside Syria. So a country of 22 million had more than 22 million outside its own country because of the fact that the vicious regime would either kill them, imprison them, torture them, or escort them out of the country. And I have to tell you, I'm blessed that my family escaped in 1967 and came as political refugees to the United States and came to Ohio and then my father went to practice in Wisconsin when I was four, so I'm a Wisconsin native. But yeah, you know, my family had certainly ended up escaping. They tried to fight. My grandfather was in and out of house arrest. They attempted to work towards change, but realized that this regime could not be fought unless you had a massive, massive uprising. And my grandfather, a politician at heart for decades, realized that the forces of evil in the Middle East, fed by the Soviets and fed by petro-autocracies, that there was little to no hope. And that ultimately he came, threw up his hands, and said he wanted to become an American because every people deserve the pe- the government they have. And that's a quotation that he had taken from a well-known philosopher but felt that it felt it fit the Syrian population. The Syrian Human Rights Committee had chronicled, and I'd ask you all to look it up, many of the atrocities committed in 40 to 50 years by the Assad regime, be it the Hama massacres I discussed in 63, the repeat Hama massacres again when a revolution was tried in 1982 and again in 2011. There was the massacre at the Tedmore prison and the countless prisoners of conscience systematically snuffed out by the regime. Assad may have tolerated some religious differences and the propagandists today will say that, well, the Assad regime is better for minorities than the evil of ISIS. But both evils are two sides of the same coin. One is theocratic, systematic fascism, theofascism of Islamism, and the other is secular military fascism with an Islamism fed from the Shia Islamism of Khomeinism. And while the the Assad regime tolerated some religious differences, when it didn't interfere with the political objectives, the Christians, Yazidis, Druze, and others that were left alone were only those who did not buck the Ba'ath system and the Ba'ath regime. In the 80s, the secular Alawite Ba'athists began a deep alliance with the theocratic Khomeinist Iran. 
the Assad regime then came under its influence and its Shia crescent into Syria and Lebanon. Syria had a, to, to know this history, Syria took the side of Iran in the bloody Iraq-Iran war. It had a rivalry against its brother Ba'athists of Saddam, but it was very odd for the Arabs to take the side of Iran in the Iraq-Iran war. But that should have spelled out where things were going in the Iran-Iraq-Syria-Lebanon axis. So with Iran, though, again, footnote to those of you who believe Assad is better for Christians than others. With Iran came its anti-Christian, anti-Semitic, and anti-Sunni ideology. Why are there no Jews left in Syria if Assad was so great for minorities? He wasn't great for minorities. He was great for anyone who believed in his family's rule and in Baathism. So his own theocratic version of Shia Islam is a militant, misogynistic, supremacist version of Shia Islamism exemplified in the theocracy of Iran. And the Alawites were all too willing to allow this intolerant influence to permeate the Syrian culture. And you'll see if you talk to Syrians since my family left in the 60s that will tell you in the 70s and 80s Syria became a lot more fundamentalist a lot more evidence of burqas and hijabs and Salafism from the Sunnis, but also mirrored with Khomeinist conservatism and fundamentalism with encroachment of a more theocratic mindset, even though the rule of law, non-existence, but the rules from the regime were more and more theocratic or Sharia-based. So ultimately, towards the end of the 80s and into the 90s, you saw some brewing intolerance, even more so, regional militant Sunni Islamist ideologies from Saudi Arabia's Wahhabism, Egypt, Jordan, Qatar, the Muslim Brotherhood influence then became became more antagonistic with the Khomeinist influence in Syria, and the Hama massacres were driven also by some brotherhood influence there in which Assad wanted to wipe out the Sunni radical influence. But in the name of wiping out the brotherhood influence, there also wiped out tens of thousands of innocent families. And the West didn't pay attention to it. The West ignored it. Yes, because they had a bigger fish to fry with the Soviets at the time in the region, but also because the deeper conflict was to be avoided, which was a more regional conflagration. Nothing illustrates the systematic radicalization campaign better than how Assad maintained close relations with Iranian-backed group Hezbollah and its leader Nasrullah, while also he provided sanctuary for Khalid Meshal, the head of Hamas and a Muslim Brotherhood offshoot. Meshal stayed in Syria with his headquarters in Damascus, unable to participate in acts of terror and drive them directly from Israel and from the West Bank or Gaza. And he stayed there until almost a year after the revolution in which 
Hamas finally, ultimately then tried to take over the revolution, which was started by secularists, but then, as always has been the case in the revolutions in the Middle East, the Islamists end up being more organized. So Mash'al then went against Assad, as Hamas did, because they saw Syria becoming a Muslim Brotherhood Islamic State. But they lost that control to ISIS and the more militant Wahhabis. And when the Arab awakening came to Syria in 2011, these two radicalizing currents of the Islamists of Nusrullah's Khomeinism or the Islamists of Hamas's Salafism affecting both Shia and Sunni created fertile ground for sectarian violence and the growth of ISIS in both Syria and Iraq. When we come back, we'll go into the contemporary issues of what created ISIS, both in Iraq and Syria. And now you can see, as we've gone through the trajectory of 50 years of Syrian politics, dictatorship, and military rule, that once the revolution started, it was again a natural evolutionary process for the revolution to degenerate, as guided by the military dictatorship of Assad into a radicalization and the massacring of the moderate population. This is Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network with Reform This. Breaching the fault lines of today, this is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. The progressive movement is full of lies. Why do Americans keep falling for the deception? In his new book, Liars, Glenn Beck reveals the simple answer, fear. At our most basic level, we're all afraid of something. And progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears. Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the disease of progressivism. Liars by Glenn Beck. On sale now at glennbeck.com slash liars. Radio Network On Demand. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. It's great to be with you. And we're sort of doing what I like to call Syria 101 with the rampant ignorance that's floating around the internet into political circles, presidential debates, and into the mainstream discussion about the Middle East, and especially about the Syrian revolution. I wanted to take an episode this week to simply focus on Syria. And yes, I have a deep personal connection. I am the son of Syrian refugees who escaped in the mid-60s, grandfather who was in and out of house arrest and fought against the Ba'athists, the Syrian national fascists. And in the first few segments, you and I have talked about what was the history that led to the revolution in 2011. And make no mistake, you cannot understand the Arab awakening. You cannot understand the revolution in Syria that started in the small towns of Daraa and the larger towns of Hama and Homs and was realized into the larger cities, the metropolitan areas of Damascus and now Aleppo, 
in a avalanche of people who decided they would reject one of the most ruthless regimes on the planet. And we can talk now. I'd like to spend some time talking about more of the contemporary problems and solutions in Syria. What happened there? What happened since 2011? But you can't understand that revolution. The revolution, I'm sorry, yes, Syria was not quote-unquote at war, but the people who wanted to think freely, who wanted to be free, did not want to be living in the prison of a society that is the borders of Syria, but wanted to speak out and be human and regain some of their human rights, have always been in a revolution. And that is the majority of Syria. And it wasn't divided Sunni Shia. It wasn't divided Sunni Alawite. It was divided those who towed the line of the Syrian Ba'ath Party and those who did not. Now, certainly since the revolution, that line has been artificially and intentionally driven to be widened as a chasm between sectarian divides of Sunni Shia, two sects of the religion of Islam, or other sects including Druze, Christians, other faiths, Christians and Jews and Yazidis and others. This has been the plan and the operational manual, if you will, that the Assad family learned from over 50 years of Soviet training, Russian friendship, and empowerment by the ruthless kleptocrats and tyrants of Russia and more recently Iran over the past 20 years. This is how Iran controls its population from Tehran throughout Iran and Assad is following suit. So, the revolution started long before. Towns were massacred, as we discussed, with Hama in 63 and 82. Prisons were... Prisoners were tortured. People were inhumanly targeted, assassinated, imprisoned. Families turned against one another. And for decades, the Syrian population lived in just a horrific state of complete paralysis to where even abroad in free lands here in the West, Syrians were reporting on their families back in Syria and also here domestically about who in America and England and Germany was a threat to the Assad regime. And this is why so many Syrian Americans are true patriots. American patriots, because we realized no different than the Cuban community, no different than American Chinese, American Vietnamese, and so many others that have come from war-torn areas, from dictatorships and escaped for political freedom, that this country gave us freedoms that the nations of our motherlands did not. So, finally, the Syrian people got the strength that my grandfather had prayed for, which was to fight against their dictatorship. And they they didn't plan this. It was a slow rolling revolution that started with families in Dara 
that were questioning the way kids were treated at a school and they decided to protest. The kids disappeared and were killed, so more protested. The parents then were assassinated, more protested, and the marches went on. The people of Syria thought that then, by televising, by posting on YouTube the videos of assassins of the Shabiha, which is the name given to the animals, the rogue monsters of the Assad regime that would go house to house and terrorize the neighborhoods that were the root of the revolution. And terrorized they did. And the people refused to respond in kind. They simply walked the streets. Now the Assad propaganda says otherwise, but look at the videos. Look online. It was there. It is there. The Syrian revolution for the first few months was a one-sided bloodbath where there were targeted assassinations and the Assad regime had a, had a plan in which it said that, well, if we kill no more than 50 to 100 a day, no more than two to 3,000 a week, that the American people, the West, the world, the UN might pay some attention, but not enough to ever want to do anything about it. That is their track record in other civil wars. And sure enough, that's about the rate. And they thought that there would be attrition. And the rural towns of Syria did not give up. They continued to rally. They continued to march. And to do so with peaceful, with peaceful civil disobedience against a ruthless regime that began using tanks and then began using aircraft, helicopters. But many thought the revolution would not continue because the big cities, especially the business hub in Aleppo, where most of the money is made and business transactions occurred, that as long as the main business community in which the regime made its income in Damascus and Aleppo did not weigh in, that the revolution would not succeed. Now, Damascus obviously had some small towns that revolted, but that was the strongest hold of the regime. And they began in the first six months to see significant defections from the Assad Ba'athist military. So many of us, as I testified and briefed Congress, that this may succeed, the revolution may succeed, but there would be no political solution. And some of us participated in various Syrian democratic coalitions thinking quixotically, obviously in retrospect, that the Syrian opposition would be able to unify in some way. And the people marching were not just Sunni Muslims. Yes, 70% of Syria is Sunni Muslim. And yes, the majority of the revolution were Sunni. But initially, in the first six months, in the first part of the revolution, the revolution in Syria was deeply diverse, not only from various small towns, but Christian and Alawite. There were Alawite towns that were revolting against Assad. Why? Because the regime was not just Alawite. The regime was about Assad's family, with probably the biggest criminal not only being Bashar, but his brother Maher, and the entire cousins and other infrastructure of that family. As you know, 
Bashar took the presidency over after his father, Hafiz, the tyrant-in-chief, passed away in 2000. So, the revolution then found itself losing thousands and realizing that it had to turn into a war that they had to respond they had to defend their families and that this was going to be a civil war and they began to fight back they began to shoot back now the regime will say that they hid in homes and that this was the act of terrorists where did you expect them to hide this is a civil war between the people and its government the people only have their homes So they began to collect arms from wherever they could. And the United States talked about Esed must go, but he did not. And the United States did virtually nothing. We wrung our hands over and over about who we should give arms to. And yes, at the time, there was a difficult time assessing. And President Obama gave the ultimate insult from the bully pulpit of the White House in which he said, who would we give arms to? These are pharmacists and engineers and business people. They don't know anything. They're not a militia. Insulting to come from the president of a country whose revolution was founded by a free people that refused to remain colonized. A free people that was not an organized militia that revolted in order to build the greatest country on earth in a constitution written and fought for by ordinary Americans, not by a militia. But we sat on our hands and left a vacuum. And those 100 to 200 were killed daily, assassinated and shot from rooftops with helicopter gunships also shooting into rallies, into marches. And slowly the marches dissipated and the Syrian revolution transformed and metamorphosized into a bloody, bloody civil war. And as that war evolved, the people were looking for weapons. People don't have weapons after living under a dictatorship for 50 years, a tyrannical regime that raped people who questioned their government, that killed children and assassinated their parents in front of them. And yet many did try to continue the peaceful response. YouTube videos were plenty being posted. Assad regime would try to cut off the internet, but it also had to communicate. And it also used the internet in order to paint a propaganda that it was the victim. And initially you saw many military taking hits. Why? Because... The Assad regime was targeting some of its own military who were refusing to shoot upon innocence. And there was a significant attrition into the first 12 to 24 months of the military. And we thought, those of us who believe that Syria will be free, we thought that the regime would fall and would collapse. Had it remained a civil war, the regime would have collapsed but in comes the cavalry the Iranian troops 
the Revolutionary Guard of the Khomeinists came in the thousands to fight for the Assad regime. The Russian military provided assistance and weapons initially, and then fast forward to September 30, 2015, began providing air support and began putting the nails into the coffin of the revolution. But the last nail is not in because the revolution's continuing, and Russia's going to find itself in another Afghanistan, in which it will ultimately need to pull out. Now, the evolution of this did not happen overnight. As the Free Syria Army was initially more united, now it was never united in a way that it could have been fully supported, but there was no Jabhat al-Nusra, which is an al-Qaeda offshoot. There was no ISIS in 2011-2012. There were some radical splinter groups, but for the most part, these were diverse groups of Syrians that were trying to figure out how to fight a war that they wanted to fight, but had limited skill sets and limited weapons. So in comes the weapons. From who? From the Sunni regimes, which are Sharia supremacists. And sure enough, along with them, along with the Saudis and Qatari and Turkish weapons, will come ideological influence with their contacts, which are the Islamists of the Free Syria Army. When we come back, I'm going to finish for you sort of what happened with the Syrian revolution and why we are where we are today and what some of the solutions should have been or should be in that it's never too late to be on the right side of history. This is Udi Jasser, and we'll be right back. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network. Coming up today on Pat and Stu. Billy Bush has been suspended by NBC. Yeah. Based on a tape from 11 years ago, it's kind of interesting. CNN's Brian Stelter reporting he was suspended by the network. Uh, dear Today family, I know we've all been deeply troubled by the revelations the past 48 hours. Let me be clear, this is there is simply no excuse for Billy's language and behavior on that tape. Pat and Stu, weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to our last segment this week of Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. Your faithful American Muslim, American patriot, here to talk about those issues of the day in depth in a way that you won't hear them elsewhere. From a point of view, you will not hear elsewhere that of a reformist, pro-liberty, pro-American point of view. Today, we're talking about Syria 101. What do we need to understand? What do you need to understand as an American to know what are the interests, what are the problems, and what are the solutions for Syria? I would tell you that ultimately, uh, Assad had and his regime, his military thugs, even though they were outnumbered, they remained outgunning the revolution. But it wasn't any civil war. It had transformed into a regional conflict, and that conflict was between the relatively unarmed Syrian people and the regime armed with tanks, chemical weapons, 
helicopter gunships, jets, and a military. Also, boosted by Russian armed support, cash, and assistance, and technical assistance and training, and bolstered by tens of thousands of Iranian Revolutionary Guard, Republican Revolutionary Guard, and Hezbollah. Many of our families will tell you that they are fighting a revolution against, no longer against Arabs, but against Persians and Afghanis and Pakistanis and Shia from around the world and Russians who are coming in to fight for Assad, the ruthless genocidal Assad who claims that he's targeting terrorists when in fact he's carpet bombing and Putin's military is carpet bombing Sunni neighborhoods in the suburbs of Aleppo and Damascus and Dara and Hama and Homs and across the cities of Syria. This is the reality. And fast forward through 2012, there was still no ISIS, but Assad's methods were to allow many of the Al-Qaeda operatives that similar to what he did in, in letting them go into Iraq to kill our troops when we were fighting against Saddam he again allowed many out of prison and set them loose to infiltrate and create acts of terror that then allowed him and gave him cover to respond ruthlessly as dictators and tyrants do. He adopted a strategy of divide and conquer, exploiting the sectarianism, where he would find himself able to, to show that either a Sunni mosque or a Shia mosque was targeted and bombed. Various icons were attacked that would allow the sectarian divisions to widen. There were also foreign Sunni fighters who came in from Saudi Arabia, from Qatar, from Turkey. And soon those would then become foreign ISIS fighters coming in as ISIS then formed itself in 2013 as the Islamic State and al-Baghdadi then saw the opening to create his headquarters in Raqqa but also had seen the weakness in Iraq and, and figured that this could be a war beyond Syria but also for Sunni dominance into an Iraq that had also lost its nationalism because into ISIS's strength is its ability to exploit the weakness of nationalism and the weakness of secularism when it's dominated by dictators and tyrants that ruin the name and the branding of sectarian, of secularism. And that's what ISIS did. ISIS was able to spread it to northern Iraq into 2014 because Iraqi nationalism had been abandoned by the Sunni Ba'athists of Iraq because as the Americans pulled out Baghdad had surrendered to the Shia and the Shia dominance of the Iraqi parliament had basically made Iraq a client state of Iran and while Saddam Hussein as a Sunni tyrant had decimated the people of Iraq no different than Hafiz Assad and his son Bashar had done there was hope after liberation of Iraq that Iraqi nationalism in the name of democracy and critical thinking and free speech and free press would begin to make a comeback 
through a parliament, a diverse parliament. And we can talk another time about what happened in Iraq and why the the wranglings of the interim government and many of the mistakes that we made, not only in full debathification, but the mistakes that we made in not encouraging them more strongly and working with those who were true secularists but allowing it to become an Islamic state actually then fostered the seeds of the divisions of 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 conflict between Sunni and Shia. And that conflict then became a pathology of whoever was to become president from al-Maliki on and now, basically, as we pulled out and the chaperones have left, Iraq has turned into a client state of Iran. And the Sunni Ba'athists, even though they detest ISIS's ideology and its Sharia supremacism, the Sunni Ba'athists have no reason to fight for Iraq. So when ISIS started marching through in their Toyotas, <laughs> whatever they came in, from Syria... They just let them drive through. And that's how they took cities like Mosul and others. Yes, there was some fighting, but for the most part, the Sunni old Ba'athists just let them come through. The Washington Post had a couple good stories in detail that talked about how and why that happened and why the old secular Ba'athists would ever sort of surrender and allow ISIS to go through. Well, because to them, anything that would embarrass and weaken the Shia regime in, in Baghdad would be at the end good for what they saw in Iraq, and they could then take it back after the Shia were defeated. So the sectarian divide was exactly what Assad wanted. Now, ISIS, by setting up shop in Iraq, was able to get tons of cash and money flow and became an economy and became a full-fledged state with billions of dollars feeding it. And the Free Syria Army, as ISIS radicalized, other Al-Qaeda-like organizations came in and Islamists from all over the planet came into Syria, also from Europe and Tunisia and Saudi Arabia and America. It became a jihadist haven. And there was no end in sight to that. And the free Syria army that had tried to get attention from the West but got just morsels of weapons now became much more radicalized. And now had to make the bizarre concessions of the times having to work with jihadist groups and that the enemies of their enemy was their friend. And that's exactly what's happening on the other side with Assad working with Iran and Russia and anyone else who shares the enemy of ISIS. So you have these two divides that have occurred and in the middle now since 2015 in the name of fighting ISIS. And wait, this is no small footnote. August 2013, we saw the use of chemical weapons, not only the first time verified, but over 40 times verified by international organizations and tested not only out of its cruel inhumanity of belligerent tyrants and genocidal dictators, but simply also to test the will of the West to prove that Obama's red line meant nothing and that ultimately Russia could do whatever it wanted. And that's when Russia began accelerating its work into into Syria because it realized that the United States would never get involved in Syria no matter what happened, full stop, period. 
and Russia that had its base, as I told you in the early parts of this episode, that had its base in Tartus would then solidify and amplify its work in Syria and actually begin to hand anti-aircraft technology and other things to the Syrians to protect against any NATO forces and others that would come in. And Russia was not only helping its friend of Assad, but also doing what it did in Ukraine, which is expanding its imperial wishes. And lost in the middle, lost in that crossfire, were the minorities, the Yazidis who were genocidally killed in Iraq, the Christians, upon which it took finally the House of Representatives in the United States to declare that there was genocide against them by ISIS in one of the most evil, if not the most evil incarnations of humanity came out of this conflict, which was the Islamic State led by Baghdadi. And the only thing to end this Islamic State would be the will of the West. While Assad and Russia claim to be fighting ISIS, look at the air campaigns that they're running. They're not bombing ISIS. Maybe one out of ten sorties are into areas, but they should have been If they're going to carpet bomb anywhere, why weren't they bombing Raqqa? But no, they're bombing southwest, west, central areas of Aleppo where there is hardly any ISIS. Yes, there may be some jihadists, but I thought their war was against ISIS. And yes, it is against the jihadists also, but what they were killing, for example, there were 50 to a few hundred Free Syria Army soldiers that we had trained, supposedly the CIA had trained, and they became the targets of the Russians and the Assadists. So in the end here, let's talk for a few minutes about what are some of the solutions as these towns all unravel. You hear politicians talk about Aleppo having fallen, which is just a bizarre rebranding for a slow genocide of carpet bombing, chemical weapons, cutting off of water, cutting off of food, the inability to bring in humanitarian aid, the cutoff of any influence from the UN, the complete ex- the complete end of any diplomatic channels. And, and these ceasefires are nonsense. Any Syrian can tell you that the political gamesmanship that's been done and brinksmanship is nonsense. There is no political solution. One side will win in Syria and the other side will have to completely surrender. Surrender to the court of the new government. And my feeling is that of the 22 million Syrians, you may see a few million in the next five years that die But ultimately, the Assad regime will be defeated. Russia will lose its will. And I hope America and the West begin to find ways to determine and to begin to help those Syrians who share their values. They're becoming lesser. And yes, Assad had a strategy a year ago when he started handing out millions of passports telling them, you either, telling the Sunnis that you either leave or you will be destroyed through carpet bombing and genocide. That's what they were told. They did not spontaneously all decide all of a sudden to leave together. This was part of a systematic operation by the Syrian regime to ethnically cleanse the area either physically or militarily. And that's what created this refugee crisis that continues with almost 10 million internally displaced, almost half of the Syrian population 
and almost four four million externally displaced with one to two million into Europe. Unbelievable numbers. And the genocide continues. The rate of killing has increased exponentially from what I told you before. And what stands into the future is an evolution. The Syrian people, I do not believe, give up this war. They've given up too much to do so. Think about wars that you know of in the past, be it the civil American Civil War, the World War I, World War II. Which conflict just sort of ended because, well, we lost, we'll just give up. There has to be a full resounding defeat for wars of this magnitude to end. And one side will need to be defeated. And the Sunnis, I do not believe, for the majority, are going to give up until the Assad regime is defeated. So what do we do? To be on the right side of history, I think obviously the Assad regime is evil. We cannot work with evil. That is un-American. Now, the Free Syria Army also does not share our values, many of whom are radicals, are jihadists. We should not work with them. So what's left? We begin on the ground through special forces, through a UN protection force in the area, like we did in Bosnia, Herzegovina, and Kosovo. We begin to carve out areas where the UN can go in, where Western forces, NATO forces can begin to carve out areas of safe zones. And through those areas, then we begin to also train and work with rebel forces, with free Syria army forces that do share our values. It'll be a long war. This is not a short one. But eventually then, those forces will work to defeat the Assad regime. Yes, it is a cold, if not a warm war, as it was in Afghanistan and elsewhere against the Assad regime, but also, obviously, in some ways against Russia. Because the Cold War is just being rebranded, obviously. It's still the Cold War. And we have to continue to fight for our interests and our values together, and we can do both. In the last episode, I talked about whether we should fight for our interests or our values, and yes, I lean towards values, but I think our American interests are served by helping those who share our values. And if we simply ignore those who share our values and help those who detest our values, like despots, it'll in the end come back to hurt us and kill us as they feed terrorists around the world. We see this in Saudi Arabia, we see it in Iran, we see it with the Assad regime. So, solution. Help humanitarian, force humanitarian solutions through the UN to empower a UN protection force as we did in Bosnia, Herzegovina, and Kosovo. Two, begin to work slowly on the ground, quietly and covertly with rebel forces that truly we believe in. And we should not be embarrassed. It doesn't have to be that covert. We did in Afghanistan and we can do it here again where we do it because we recognize that the Russians are on the side of evil and we will help the other side. They're not embarrassed about helping Assad. We should not be embarrassed about helping those forces that share our values. And we may need to help figure out ways that they can be created. And yes, help them also defeat not only Assad, but help them defeat ISIS, help them defeat Jabhat al-Nusra. And demand that the Saudis and the Qataris stop funding the radical jihadists 
and actually work on the side of secularist movements. And lastly, create no-fly uh, no zones and safe zones. Now, what do you do with that pesky DOD memo of understanding with the Russians? That'll have to be renegotiated and do it through the UN. Yes, they have a Security Council vote, but we can do it through the UN where we say that we are going to begin to do it unilaterally. We will not fight against them, but we will protect the forces that seek to be free in Syria and defeat both the enemies of the jihadists that are in the jihadists and the enemies that are in the Assadists and the Syrian regime. I hope this was helpful. I hope Syria 101 has gained some clarity for you. I don't have all the answers, but I certainly think from our discussion you have a little better understanding of the history and where we should go from here. Thank you. Thank you for spending the time with me. Thank you for joining me on Reform This. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. This is your faithful host, Zudi Jasser. God bless. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.